This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hello, welcome back to Vox Conversations. I'm again Sean Ramos from host of Vox's daily news podcast, Today Explained. And as I explained to you last week in this feed, we are now building on the rich legacy left by the last five years of Ezra Klein's conversations in this feed. We're now bringing you conversations between some of the brightest minds and smartest people we know. Take, for example, today's episode. We're going to be hearing from Peter Kafka from Recode, host of Recode Media. We're actually playing an episode of Peter's show, Recode Media, in which he talks to New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos. You're going to get a lot out of it. There's a lot to talk about. Here's Peter. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I hope you're well. First up, I talked to the New York Times' Kevin Roos, who's an excellent chronicler of social media and its impact on its users and society. I'm sure you're already reading him if you listen to this podcast, but you should also check out his Rabbit Hole podcast. It's a sort of limited series he did about disinformation, primarily on YouTube, but really on the internet in general. Uh, today, Kevin and I talked about a column he wrote for the Times about the power that Twitter and Facebook and the rest of big tech have in our lives how we saw that illustrated by the deplatforming of sort of Donald Trump and Parler over the course of a couple of days. Uh, and Kevin and I talked about sort of what tech doesn't, doesn't do with that power, and what hope the rest of us have in, in changing that power that tech has, um, whether we want to change it, how we might reform it, how we might regulate it. Um, it's not an uplifting conversation, but it's, it's useful, I think. Okay, let's jump into our conversation with Kevin Roos. I'm here with Kevin Roos from the New York Times, columnist, podcaster, long overdue Recode Media guest. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Peter. I was just apologizing for not having you on years ago. Uh, and we'll have a longer chat, but I want to have a, a fairly focused conversation with you about the events of last week and kicking off with this column you wrote over the weekend. Um, I guess there's multiple titles for a, a, any any story online, but the one I saw was in pulling Trump's megaphone. It's a very timesy and headline. In pulling Trump's megaphone, Twitter shows where power now lies. Um, and I want to pull out what I think is the the key graph here before we let you talk. Uh, above all, Mr. Trump's muzzling provides a clarifying lesson in where power resides in our digital society, not just in the precedent of law or the checks and balances of government but in the ability to deny access to the platforms that shape our public discourse. That's a good paragraph. Um, and I think it neatly encapsulates this messy, kind of wild conversation we're having this week, should have been having for a long time, and I think we are going to have for a long time, which is 
What do we do about the fact that Twitter and Facebook and also YouTube are enormously powerful parts of our society and are basically unregulated? So let's let's start there. It's a light conversation. Yeah. I'll spoil it for the, the readers, listeners. Uh, but you don't really reach a conclusion in your column. Is that because I'm assuming it's because you don't have one? Well, I, I think our discussions around sort of online speech and moderation and platform power have been like sort of really impoverished for a, a long time. Um, and, and I think basically it's possible to hold two competing ideas in your head that A, these platforms have a ton of power and that should worry us. These are not elected officials. These are, you know, guys who live in California making decisions about the speech of 2 billion people. So that's strange and they, they maybe shouldn't have that much power. And B, that while they do have that power, it's their moral obligation to use it to prevent mass violence and the overthrow of American democracy. So I think a lot of people talking about this this week have had these kind of what seemed to me like simplistic ideas, like these platforms should not have this power. We should take this, plat this power away from them. And it was wrong to ban President Trump. And I think where I've come down is that both these things are true, that they were correct to do what they did, and that the fact that they have this power um, with basically no accountability and no oversight should worry us and should make us look harder for other models. And I want to talk to you about those models, but we can, we can, there's some easy stuff that we can dispense with, I think, because I think they're either said by people who don't know better or should know better, right? We're not talking about a technical First Amendment violation, right? These are private companies. They can do what they want. And it's also, I think, hard to argue that these people are, that Donald Trump and many other folks are truly being censored. They have the ability to speak widely. Uh, am I missing any nuance there? Right. I, I mean, no serious person thinks that Twitter and Facebook are legally obligated to give the president a platform. Um, these are private businesses, but I think it's also too glib to just say these are private businesses and not think about the fact that these are businesses that have hundreds of millions or in Facebook's case, billions of users. And that, you know, it actually is a pretty big impediment to the president's ability to speak freely. Um, you know, it's, he has a White House press corps. He, he has, you know, all these outlets he can call into Fox News anytime he wants. But I don't think that's comforting him at this moment. I think he wants to be able to tweet. And it's probably really frustrating to him that he can't. Right. But he could he could give what we used to call speeches or comments, and those can be carried in part or in full on those same platforms. And that, that's happening today. He, he, he stood in front of helicopters and yelled stuff. Uh, and you're able to see all that on Twitter, where I saw it today. Right. I think he's sort of a singular case in all of this. I mean, he is, for at least a few more days, the president of the United States. Um, he has a press corps that travels with him. He has the ability to sort of appear on uh, cable TV anytime he wants. So, so this is a guy who's in no danger of being censored um, in the sense of not having the ability to get his voice out there. But I think, you know, this obviously raises questions longer term about other world leaders, other people who maybe don't have the ability to, um, you know, be amplified no matter where they talk, activists, um, you know, dissidents, people like that. So th those conversations are real. And I think that the people saying, oh, this is a, you know, this is a private business, they can do whatever they want. I think that we actually do need to wrestle with the power that these platforms have over online speech, um, because it's not just 
it's not the same as like your local restaurant booting someone in the sense that you know these platforms are are places where a lot of you know a, a, maybe a plurality or a majority of online speech is happening right there's a, a pew survey out today that says a third of americans are getting their news from facebook uh, um that's the most popular in that in that survey um had like 1% of them getting their news from uh from Tumblr, which I found surprising. Um, it seems even the third seems low to me. I mean, yeah, I think it's people who told Pew that they were doing that, right? So it's it's a poll. So w- what are you thinking about in terms of practical ways to grapple with this? Because I'm at a loss, and I don't think that any of the regulation conversation we've had over the last couple of years addresses this idea at all. That these platforms are important conduits for speech. Um, but are private conduits for speech or private companies? Well, there's a lot of work that's been going on in this field going back, you know, at least a decade. Um, Kate Klonick has, you know, great sort of foundational article um, about the sort of platform moderation debates. There's been lots of other books and papers written on this. So people much smarter than I am have have grappled with these questions. Um, but I, I think what I've learned in reviewing all of these um all of this literature and talking to many of the people who have written it is that there's there's no simple solution, right? It's not to say you know um, this you know repealing Section 230 is is the sort of band aid that's going to cure the online speech problems. I think it would actually create much more of what the right considers censorship and and um, just to and, and just, you know make them much angrier with the platforms. Right. And to um, sidebar that, the the idea is if you repealed Section 230, the platforms would be more responsible for what happens there, and they would, if you're on the left-ish side of this debate, you'd say, well, they'll go, they'll go clean it up, um, which seems not really practical and all sorts of unintended consequences, like you were just mentioning. Plus, the conservatives aren't going to be happy with it. Uh, but that doesn't seem like it actually gets to what we're talking about. Right. But I I, I do think that the the tendency to sort of slippery slope this argument that banning Donald Trump is a gateway and that these companies are going to start censoring all kinds of speech from politicians they don't like. I think that is really overblown. I mean, having talked to a number of executives at these companies, the people who are in charge of making the decisions, they don't think of this in the same category as basically anything else. It is a, a and it's something that, frankly, we've never seen before. I mean, a sitting United States president inciting a violent riot on the U.S. Capitol um, through his, largely through his social media accounts. That's not a situation that's like in the playbook. And I don't think that the decisions that they're making around Trump's account are likely to set much of a precedent just because I don't think we're going to have a situation like this again. Um, And so I think the people who are sort of using this as an opportunity to ride their hobby horse of uh, online censorship and worries about these platforms, I think they're, they're really, um, conflating, uh, acts of sort of speech with acts of violence. And, you know, there are clearly, um, you know, dangers in, in, in sort of violent incitement on a platform like this, especially when it's being carried out by the president of the United States. But you will have, and folks have pointed this out right away, right? You have the, you have the platforms that allowed Donald Trump to sort of rise, but now there's an entire ecosystem that will presumably live on past him. It seems like the platforms are fundamentally uh, not comfortable sort of delving into individual tweets, to individual Facebook posts, um, and saying, this is something we like, this is something we don't like. They they seem to not want to do that at all. Um, 
And it doesn't seem like there's any sort of government answer to this. And this is already a very depressing conversation. But is there any sort of practical way out that you see for this this problem we have got ourselves into? Yeah, I don't think government regulation is going to be the answer here. I think I've come around to the position that actually the most important lever on these companies is social pressure. Um, is pressure and 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 frankly workforce pressure from their own employees. So an underreported part of the Twitter banning Donald Trump decision was that the day before a group of hundreds of Twitter employees had basically sent a letter to Jack Dorsey, kind of making it clear that they you know didn't want to work at a at a company that provided a platform for an insurrectionist mob. Employees of Facebook you know, have been agitating for harsher um, punishments for Donald Trump for years. And these companies, you know, they live and die on their ability to recruit and retain top talent. And so I think the the, the social pressure on them um, from their peers, but also the pressure from under, from the rank and file employees of their companies, um, that's a large part of what drives them to make these decisions. Do you have a sense of, of sort of how um, sort of, what moves a Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg? It's one thing to hear from a bunch of employees. Does it matter who the employees are or how many of them are? Does it, does it have to be from someone from the inner circle or if there is a large group of sort of, you know, bottom of the pyramid employees, uh, is that also effective? I think it matters who they are. I mean, you know, frankly, I think it matters if they're, you know, senior people, people with, you know, specialized knowledge, people who have been at the company a long time, who have sort of become trusted on a lot of these issues. Um, I think it does matter. I think when, I, I also think it matters who the outside critics are too. I mean, if it's, you know, people who they're used to taking criticism from, it doesn't resonate as much. Um, I, I heard a number of people at these companies actually talk about Michelle Obama as someone who had sort of, she released this I guess it was a Facebook post um, last week after the the insurrection at the Capitol, basically calling for the Silicon Valley companies to take more action against Donald Trump and ban him permanently. And I and I, I heard from a couple different people that that was something that I think moved the needle in a way that maybe criticism from you know me or you or some other person who's constantly harping on these companies um, maybe wouldn't register. So I, I think it matters who the critics are. Um, I think it matters internally who the employees are who are objecting, but obviously there's a, a numbers game too. I mean, you can't lose half your workforce um, over a protest about what you did with the president's account. So the the kind of practical solution I'm I'm searching for appears to be right now hope that the employees of these incredibly powerful private companies force the companies to reform themselves. I think that's a big piece of it. Um, I uh, I once had someone a source tell me that the the most powerful people in the tech industry are Stanford seniors because the ability to recruit. Um, from top colleges is a big part of of what you know makes these companies successful, and we've seen already that some graduates in some colleges are not willing to work for Facebook, are not willing to work for some of these other companies um, until they reform their practices, and that's a real risk to their business. Yeah, anecdotally, I heard that Uber a couple of years ago, sort of at the nadir of of that, um, where you could not, you could no longer get a, a promising uh, computer science graduate to go work at Uber at least for a period. But look, again, I, and I don't want to say that this is all self-interested because I, you know, at the risk of sounding like I'm, you know, carrying water for, for these executives, I do think they care about 
their legacy and how they're perceived. I think a number of them, um, you know, including Mark Zuckerberg, have been very frank about, you know, they want their kids someday to feel like they did something good. And I think that presented with something like a mob at the Capitol, I think they saw a very clear kind of fork in the road for them. You know, do, do they want to be the kind of company, the kind of executive who allows this to happen on their platforms, or do they not want to be? And ultimately, I think that in some cases, it comes down to a judgment call about, you know, what you want to tell your kids and grandkids. I'm going to break up this conversation for just a minute so we can hear from a sponsor. We'll be right back. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. And we're back. We can't make the internet go away, but for, for purposes of, of the thought exercise, if Twitter and Facebook and YouTube went away, are we better off or worse off? Are we better off having centralized structures that are built for growth, that are built for you know frictionless distribution versus sort of just stuff accumulating in weird corners of the internet where maybe we can't see it? It's a good question. It's something I've thought about a lot. I mean, the argument is, you know, if you break up Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, then, you know, five smaller things replace it. And maybe they don't have the same AI detection systems or capabilities. Maybe they're not run by people who particularly care about removing violent incitement from the internet. Maybe it's just, you know, a bunch of gabs. And, and It's a and, guy in the Philippines running Aitken, right? Exactly. So, so I think this is a real question. And I think you have to evaluate it on two questions. One is the, the sort of contagion effect how likely are people on a given platform who don't go looking for extremist content, how likely are they to be exposed to it anyway through sort of algorithms, recommendations, suggested pages and groups? Um, and then there's the question of sort of the hardened extremists, the people who are already part of extremist movements and, and sort of what their community dynamics are. So I think the upside of having lots of little social networks would be that the damage in some ways could be contained. You could say, okay, these are the bad networks where the, you know, the, the 
the violence and the hate speech and the incitement is going on, and we can sort of deal with those. But they're not likely to kind of jump the fence to these other social networks and sort of contaminate discourse. That's, there. that's the bad part of town. Don't go there. Don't go to that club. Exactly. An and, I, yeah. and I think, you know, this sort of federated model is something that I, I think we haven't, you know, really probed yet. Um, the, the example that I'll, that I tend to use is, is Reddit. I mean, Reddit has notoriously, um, had problems with moderation and hate speech and all kinds of garbage. Um, but it, it was able to kind of contain, because the structure of Reddit is sort of this network of mini networks, it, it, those, that bad behavior was largely contained to those subreddits. And when they decided to nuke those, it wasn't like they had to go cleaning up their entire, you know, history subreddits didn't become infected with, you know, stuff about uh, QAnon. It was like they were separate parts of Reddit. And so you could deal with the problem in one part because it hadn't yet spread everywhere. And so I think that's the upside of having lots of little social networks that don't have billions of users is that you're less likely to encounter this kind of, you know, like poison in the water effect. Right. And to be clear, none of the sort of proposals we've seen about breaking up Facebook, for instance, address that, right? So if you break up Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp into three different things, there's still huge things with all the same sort of structural problems. Um, while I have you here, I want to talk to you about YouTube, in part because you're an expert on YouTube and you have an excellent podcast. Is it the Rabbit Hole? Am I getting the title right? Just rabbit hole, no the. Rabbit hole, no the. I screwed up eventually. Uh, which which specializes in, in talking about disinformation and, and the rabbit hole of YouTube. Uh, and also because I think it's been undercovered in this conversation. So first of all, can you sort of spell out what role you think YouTube has had in getting us to where we got last week? Um, I think from you know a couple of years of reporting on this now and, and having talked to a number of people who end up in these extremist movements, I think YouTube has been a major force in sort of providing an on-ramp to extremist ideology for a lot of people. And a lot of the way that happens is through their recommendation algorithm, which is I mean, people don't really understand the extent to which like the recommendation algorithm is YouTube. Like it's it's responsible for more than 70% of all the time that people spend on YouTube. You go to and YouTube so, to find something and then it tells you to find something else and that's and then now you're down. Which by yeah, the way is the same as TikTok, right? Except you don't tell TikTok you want something. Right. So so this algorithm is enormously powerful and it's been through a lot of evolution over the years, but what I was really focused on in Rabbit Hole was this this sort of period between sort of 2012 and kind of 2018. Um, and the, the YouTube algorithm in that period, um, the, the guy that I reported on, this guy named Caleb Kane, who was a 26-year-old guy from West Virginia who sort of got drawn into a rabbit hole of uh, conspiracy theories, of videos that were, you know, sending him down these sort of paths to extremists that were introducing him to this world of influencers who had popped up on YouTube. And I, I've since, you know, since the podcast came out, I've heard from hundreds, thousands, tons and tons of people who say, you know, this happened to my brother, this happened to my friend, this happened to my mom. I think YouTube has been a major accelerant and driver of, um, of energy toward these large extremist movements. And I think it's, um, I think it's a big problem. I think it's one that they're, they're trying to deal with, but I think it, you know, in some ways it's, it's too late. Is it any different fundamentally than, than Twitter and Facebook in terms of 
giving you more. It's 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 set up for engagement. It wants you to be engaged. It will surface things to you that it think you want that you want to look at. It's very hard for them to moderate because it's big and, and scaled. Um, is there is there any anything that's different about those two, or just the amount of it? It's, it or is there something different about it? I guess is my shorter question. There's there's less different about it now than it used to be. I mean, YouTube really pioneered the sort of AI driven recommendation. That was kind of their big innovation. Um, they sort of made huge advances in that. They have the best engineers, and they you know they have all the all the AI talent in the world there, and so they sort of pioneered the use of AI to sort of. Uh, to sort of make these recommendations more accurate, to get people to spend more time on YouTube. So I wouldn't say it's, YouTube obviously is, is a different platform. I mean, it's not a messaging platform, it's a broadcast platform. And so that happens, you know, that, that means that people are not, you know, it's not like Twitter where people might be, you know, sending you know, 20 messages an hour with someone. It's, it's more like these communities that form around these influencers. People like, you know, Alex Jones, before he got banned, you know, all kinds of alt-right figures had sort of these communities that were all intertwined. And um, and that's sort of what had the radicalizing effect was the combination of the algorithm and the way that the influencers kind of hacked the algorithm to get bigger distribution. So you and I know that YouTube's a big deal and very important. Why do you think it has escaped the scrutiny and, and beating and criticism that Twitter and Facebook have got have gotten? I have, I have a theory, but I want to hear yours. No, I want to hear your theory too, because I, I well, I'll, I'll give my theory and then yeah. and then you can give your theory. I mean, my theory is that um, journalists don't spend enough time on YouTube. Ding. Yes. <laughs> and, and 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 normal people, right? Like, I mean, normal people certainly do, but it's it's it skews very. There's a part of it that skews very young. And I think it's for a lot of people, it's not baked into their sort of standard way they consume information. Um, and also, I think practically sort of pointing out something that's bad on YouTube is harder to do, right? If it's a beheading video, that's pretty straightforward. But if it's a, if it's a gamer video where the guy's steadily dropping in weird sort of red pill stuff at, while he talks, it's not evident sort of what the outrage is and why something's bad. Totally. And it's also a, a personalized platform. So your YouTube homepage and my YouTube homepage probably look nothing alike. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who might be worried about YouTube might log on and say, like, what's the big problem here? It's all knitting videos and, you know, food uh, recipe, you know, videos. And like, what's the what's the big issue here? But if you one thing that I, I really was excited to be able to do for Rabbit Hole was to actually go through this This guy, Caleb Kane, sent me his whole YouTube history, which was like 12,000 videos spanning four years. And so I was able to actually like see the YouTube world from his perspective and kind of retrace his step down the rabbit hole. And that was enormously valuable because it taught me that, A, his experience of YouTube is totally different than than mine. and I, And I think it really lends some insight into how this actually happens, what the rabbit, you know, what the steps are along the way, who you get introduced to, and kind of what the the forces are that are drawing you into these extremist worldviews. Uh, it's been a lousy week. Uh, can you can you give me any bit of, of hope or uh, uplift or thought that maybe something gets better in, in either the short, medium, or long term? Uh, have you seen the sea shanties on TikTok? No. They're very good. Okay. TikTok is really into sea shanties right now, and they're making some great videos. I, I can say pretty honestly that is like the only thing that has brought me joy this week on the internet. Um, but I, I think that we, 
to the extent that there's an upside to this. Obviously, what happened at the Capitol was a horrible tragedy. Um, I think we're probably in for more violence, unfortunately. Um, and and we have this really big extremism problem to deal with now. Um, I think it's good that people are paying attention to it now. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, it felt like only counterterrorism people, disinformation reporters, and sort of platform trust and safety teams were seeing this stuff. And now at least we're having a bigger national conversation about it. Yeah. And that is something I think about a lot, which is I think for years I took a comfort, which turned out to be a false comfort in the idea that bad people on the internet were bad people on the internet and they didn't really venture out beyond their computers. And over the last four or five years, which may or may not have to do with with our president, um, they started showing up in synagogues and temples and mosques and shooting people and performing for online. And then you get to last week, right, where it's a very online mob in real life. And I think it is now uh, impossible to ignore that. So yes, let's let's take some sad solace in that. All right, that's a bummer of an interview, uh, Kevin, but I'm glad you came on. Thank you. Next time, we'll just talk about sea shanties, I promise. All right. You, you know where to find Kevin Roos. We'll have him on for a longer conversation about sea shanties and more. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening to Vox Conversations. We have more conversation coming at you this week and in the weeks to come. And remember, if you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? Definitely let us know that, too. You can send us an email, voxconversations at vox.com. We want to hear who you'd love to hear host the show, who you'd love to hear be a future guest on the show. Again, the email is voxconversations at vox.com. And if you want to rate or review the show wherever you listen, that's great, too. Thanks. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 